Hello, thanks for joining us. And uh, today is a special day because we're welcoming our good friend Ahmed Al Nook, uh, a journalist. Because what we want to discuss and get to the bottom of really is this issue, really, which is about the the, the consistent uh, misrepresentation of Palestine that some people feel, a lot of people feel, the Western media in particular uh, has been guilty of. And with Ahmed here, um, we're going to have an opportunity, and I hope all of you who are watching um, have got questions to, to send in, um, because, uh, you know, it's 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 easy, I suppose, for people to say, oh, the media is biased and thrash around. and But the, but the reality of this particular story and the, the way that the, the, the media, particularly in the West, has covered Palestine, has been uh, growing in 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 degrees of con controversiality, really, um, and, and more and more we're seeing on social media. I think a pickup, uh, especially of the sins of omission. We've talked. We're talking to be talking about the sins of omission. We're going to be talking about deliberate misrepresentation. We're also going to be talking about the the power of, of people who are organised to uh, intimidate uh, journalists, uh, to threaten journalists. To, to, in order to get journalists to tell the story that they want them to tell. Um, I've been a journalist. I was uh, with Al Jazeera. No doubt people might say that I'm biased because I've been a journalist working for Al Jazeera. But my journalist training um, with newspapers and television was always to tell the truth. And uh, I know Ahmed uh, comes from that same very honourable tradition. Um, and I'm going to introduce him uh to you all in a minute. Many of you may, of course, know him already. But um, I thought that just to, we were talking about this before we, we began this evening with the show. I thought that to set the the pace, really, to to really as an opening explainer in a way of of, of, of why people are so frustrated, angry, uh, and and sometimes almost feel impotent to do things about this about the misrepresentation, misrepresentation of Palestine in the media. We've got a clip for you, and this is from uh, the uh, Palestine's ambassador to the UK. Now, just before we show the clip, I should say that uh, Hussam Zomlot is, of course, the ambassador, but the UK is one of the minority of countries that still doesn't actually recognise Palestine. Uh, the UK government says it will at some point in the future when there are direct negotiations or whatever reasons it may set for that. But uh, at the moment, um, Palestine is still not recognised by the UK government, although it's recognised as a as a, 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 a as a as observer status at the United Nations and is and is actually recognised by 138 odd member states right across the world. But before we start, before I introduce Ahmed to you properly, uh, I thought we could quickly just hear. Uh, what the Palestine ambassador had to say recently. BBC, this is to every single mainstream media. I mean, come on, enough, enough, enough. 74 years of this, enough, really enough. It is about time that you report the truth. It's limitless. Uh, this is limitless simply because most of these people you saw uh, in Jerusalem marching uh, yesterday with Israeli flags, supported and protected by the <clears throat> Israeli occupation army, most of them come from the illegal colonies in the West Bank, uh, deep in the West Bank. So already those are fanatics uh, who believe in the entire ethnic cleansing of Palestine, 
who are racist at heart, uh, who nurture bigotry, uh, and who are absolutely ra raised to the highest standards of uh, incitement against uh, anybody who's not like them, uh, uh, primarily, of course, the Palestinian Muslims and Christians. My take is international media, not all of them, but the mainstream ones, are complicit and complacent in the injustice that has been inflicted on us for 74 years and ongoing. Look at yesterday, Sunday, the so-called march. Look at the BBC and their coverage of the story. You will see the headline that tension is high in Jerusalem because of Israeli youth flag march, that's the headline. I mean, how could this be more twisted? This was not a march by youth, but a march by illegal settlers and illegal according to the laws of this country that the BBC serves, the United Kingdom. And this was not a march to celebrate a legality, but a march to celebrate an illegality, a military occupation of East Jerusalem, again, according to the UK policy and international resolutions and law. And this was a march that brought fanatics, fanatics to the streets and shops and homes of the people in Jerusalem, our people, the Palestinian people, fanatics that would chant death to the Palestinians, that would celebrate the murder of Shireen Abu Aqli, that would spread gas, uh, papa gas, into the eyes of elderly women, elderly people. Uh, those are hooligans rather than youth, and they are doing something that is illegal, and they are also desecrating the uh, uh, holy site of Al-Aqsa. The BBC should have put its own audience in perspective, in context, but failing to do so is aiding the situation uh, to continue. And again, the BBC about Shirin Abu Akli, and not just the BBC, m most of these Western outlets <clears throat> would report the death of a Palestinian journalist as if she died uh, of natural uh, causes. They would quote the Israeli spin that she might have been killed by a Palestinian fire. At least they would not take our version, the version of the truth, by the people who were next to Shireen by the Palestinian journalists who said from day one, from minute one, that she was targeted. So, and then you know media, first impression is last. So people will not dig into the story 10 days, 15 days from now. It would be the first impression. And always the first impression is really wrong. Well, I mean, that's a very powerful expostulation of the case in many ways. and. Um, you know, Ahmed, we'll go on to discuss this and we'll go on to discuss those two particular uh, incidents that uh, the ambassador was talking to, the uh, the murder of uh, Shireen and, of course, those uh, settler demonstrations in um, East Jerusalem. And it just goes by almost in passing that some of those images were shown on mainstream media. Of course they were, but, we, but they weren't translated. Um, I mean, that, that was the first time that, for instance, I had seen people shouting death to Arabs. Um, of course, 
you know, I may be wrong, perhaps other media did, but time and time again, it's omission. It's omission. But look, all of these things we're going to talk about uh, today, um, I'm very delighted to be joined by Ahmed. And just by way of introduction, um, Ahmed's a Palestinian journalist, he's from Gaza, uh, and his personal story has very much been the inspiration behind creating uh, an organization called We Are Not Numbers. Um, many of you will be familiar with that organization, but for those who aren't, it's a youth group devoted to amplifying Palestinian voices under occupation and training. And this is an issue close to our, height, uh, our hearts at Palestine Deep Dive, training a next generation of writers. Uh, and he currently sits on the board of directors of We Are Not Numbers. Um, Ahmed has also been a, a Shevening scholar at the University of Leeds, where he holds a master's degree in international journalism. He's also worked for numerous media organizations across Gaza and currently serves as outreach and advocacy officer at the human rights organization Euromed Monitor. So um, a, a, a wealth of experience um, and, a, and a real uh, breadth of knowledge and brought, luckily for us, to the UK, because it's rare, really, to find somebody who's been a journalist on the ground um, and somebody who's come to study in Britain and somebody who is got that perspective, I think, who is able to look at media coverage of his homeland and say, this is what's wrong, this is why it's happening, and this is what needs to change. So, Ahmed, welcome. It's a long introduction to you, but welcome. I just wanted to begin, really, um, by just before we get into the discussion, I need to find out a bit more about you. What, what drove you? What made you want to become a journalist and how did you become a journalist and how easy was it to be a journalist in Gaza? Well, first, thank you so much for having me today. In fact, I never wanted to be a journalist. When I was young, oh. <laughs> teachers asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would always tell them a doctor or an engineer. <laughs> as any, oh, as any <laughs> Of course, as you know. But then I learned English and I started to read media and how the Western media covered Palestine. And then the incident of uh, then the war on Gaza in 2014 started and I lost my brother and many of my friends. And then I started to read the media in the West and I was devastated. I was irritated with how they uh, report uh, the news on Palestine. And I have to say that Mr. Uh, Dr. Hassan Zumlat represents most of the Palestinians in Gaza. When we watch the news on the, the Western media, we're irritated. We're sick and tired of seeing the Palestinians dehumanized demonized and mentioned only as, as numbers in the news. And this is actually a hard point that we only hear about the Palestinians, we only hear about Gaza when there is bloodshed in Palestine. During the last war, during the war of 2014, Gaza was on the news. And even when they want to criticize Israel, they would also mention that the Palestinians are numbers. My brother and six of my friends were killed and in the news, six Palestinians were killed. And I was devastated and I lost hope in the Western media. And then a journalist, an American journalist, came to me and asked me to write a story about my brother and how I feel about him. And I told her, no, I wouldn't write about it. Not in English, because no one will care about me. The West doesn't care about Palestine. I've seen the media in the West, and they, all, they only mention us as numbers. They never go behind these numbers in the news. They never tell our stories. But she insisted, and I, write, and I wrote my story. 
And surprisingly, uh, when we bu published that story, I received many, many emails and many, many comments from people saying that, Ahmad, we hear you. We, we are touched by your story. And then that's when we came up with, with the idea of We Are Not Numbers. We wanted to start an organization in Gaza that gives a platform for youth and refugees in Gaza to write their stories and to, to break all of the stereotypes about the Palestinians uh, in the West. So we started We Are Not Numbers to, uh, to be a substitute to what's uh, reported on, uh, on the news about Palestine and about Gaza. And the problem with the media in the West did not start with the, with the last war in Gaza. It started since the creation of Israel, since the establishment of Israel, since the Nakba of the Palestinians. These news, these distorted images about Palestine for the past 70 years. So We Are Not Numbers was a response to what we see in the news. And mm -hmm. me being a journalist did not come because I enjoy journalism or I love journalism because I, yeah. I felt that the urge for starting a human, uh, for starting an organization that that would give the Palestinian a voice that they were deprived from for the for the past. It, it's it's interesting, Ahmed, because it's it's almost like a combination of uh, journalism and, and and activism all coming together. And by the way, what you were just wearing there, of course, the the blue vest and the press is exactly what Shireen was wearing, and that provided her no protection whatsoever. But as you were just saying that, I mean, another thought occurred to me that um, uh, you know, we are not numbers, but also um, the the we the, the the media, and in particular, once again. The Western media have to say this. It is we are talking primarily about the Western media um, because it is so powerful. Um, it also refers to Palestinians uh, in, in various ways, depending on where they live in Palestine. So, as you know better than any of us, you know you can be a Palestinian in the West Bank, you can be an Israeli Arab in Israel, and you can be from Gaza. You can be a Gazan. Um, so, in a way, it almost starts off not only by uh, delegitimizing um, you as a people and as individuals, you become numbers, but even you can't even be Palestinians. Yeah, we can't be Palestinian. I've always said that if I were just born a few meters on the other side of the fence, I would have complete rights if, uh, rights uh, as a citizen. If I were born as a Jew, I would have complete rights. But we, just because we're Palestinian, just because we were born on this specific spot in the Gaza Strip, we have been deprived of all of our basic and fundamental human rights. So, yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I lived all of my life in Gaza. And then I've never met with a Palestinian from the West Bank. I've never met with a Palestinian from, from uh, the Arabs in, in Israel, in, in Palestine 48. Well, Ahmad, you see, this has been a, re a real revelation so far. Um, and by the way, we, we've on the show before, we've talked about some of these issues. But, you know, again, um, just simply saying that as somebody from Gaza, you've never been able to go to the West Bank. We had a guest on a few weeks back and she said that was her dream as a, as a Gazan to, to, for, coming from Gaza to be able to go to the West Bank, to go to Jerusalem, uh, to, to, to go to visit all parts of her country, but couldn't. That is a is a huge story. You would have thought, um, and if it was happening in it in any other country, would be um, would be very well known. And I think that's another issue that some of these basic um, pillars of discrimination, of inequality, of what is termed uh, apartheid, and we'll come on to that as well in the show. Uh, these are stories that aren't really. These are themes that aren't really thrashed out again in the Western media. Again, it's almost through omission. Would you say or 
But why, 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 we, why we, do we not get the sort of a focus on some of these huge stories of human rights? Yes, I think um, one major problem of the Western media is of what they include in their stories. But I think what is more dangerous to us is of what they exclude. I've lived in my life in Gaza. I've experienced three worlds. I was grown up to, to experience the siege that has been uh, ongoing for the past 50 years. I've been like, I lost my brother in the war. I lost my mother due to the, to Israel banning her from traveling to receive a treatment. But I've never seen these stories in, in the Western media. And this is what they, this is what we're talking about. It's the sense of omission because if they included these personal stories, if they included these uh, basic human rights that we're deprived of, it will make a huge shift on how the, the Westerners view uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. So it is deliberately and systematically omitted from the media. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. You tell me if you if you don't want to talk about this. But um, you know, since we are referring to the personal, and as, as a, one journalist to another, we know that the most powerful stories are the stories of individual uh, experience. Um, you know, what, what what happened with your brother? Well, uh, he was targeted uh, by Israel simply as any any Palestinian, where during the war, more than 2,400 people have been killed and targeted by Israel. And more than uh, 10,000 Palestinians were injured. Hundreds of houses, thousands of houses were demolished by Israel. And this is something that we grew up. And uh, usually when, when, when Pam asked me to write about his story, I said, no, it's not worth writing about because I have a neighbor just next door who went out one day to, to grab a bread uh, for his family. And he returned and he found his house destroyed with 11 of his family members killed in one day. So this is the life that we're experiencing. This is the life that we are used to in, in Palestine. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I thought we, we could perhaps look, because you, you, you talked about um, the, the, the march of return. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the recent history, particularly of the attacks on Gaza, have been you know one round of military attacks after another, a whole load of international aid floods in. There's reconstruction, and then it's all flattened again. It's almost like a, a you know like a, a miniature military-industrial complex in itself, uh, it seems. And of course, just actually, just before we get into that next part, Ahmed, I mean there was another uh, grisly milestone that was passed, I believe, this week, and and again. Very, very little reporting of it in the Western media, uh, which is that, that I think this is the 16th year of the embargo of the sanctions of the closure effectively of Gaza uh, and, uh, and effectively making Gaza what many people have described as the biggest open air prison in the world. You might have thought that was a story that the Western media might have picked up on. I've always said that Gaza is the most fertile place for journalists or for media stories. We have a story in every single house. And if you walk on the street and if you look at, at everyone you, you might encounter, everyone has a story and a personal story that deserves to be told. But I haven't seen that in the media. For example, a few weeks ago, we uh, at Euromed, we uh, organized this exhibition for an artist in Gaza uh, to show her, uh, show her artwork. And this person, her, her name is Zainab Al-Qolak, she lost 22 family members during the last war in Gaza. And she was also injured. And she painted this beautiful, uh, paintings, and we expected that all of the Western media will come to interview her, to talk about her, but no one talked about her. So we have lots of stories that deserve to be told, but they are deliberately omitted from the news. We only see Gaza in the news when there are a war, when there is bloodshed, uh, uh, bloodshedding. But Western media 
is deliberately omitting all of these personal stories that deserve to be told that will give a context to that to the conflict with the Israelis. Tell me though, Ahmed, is it is it? I mean, one of the reasons often given by journalist organisations is that it's actually very difficult to get permission to go to Gaza. Is 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 that true? Is that a problem? It's journalists can come to Gaza. In the March of Return, I've seen thousands of journalists who who can come to Gaza. Other than journalists, so many people, so many foreigners can't come to Gaza. But the journalists could have come to Gaza, and there are. Hundreds of journalists have been in Gaza. They could come to Gaza and they could interview Zainab and talk about her story. They could tell a thousand stories on the ground from Palestine. But I think it's it's a matter of deliberate. They are deliberately silenced. The Palestinians are deliberately silenced. And journalists, Western journalists, for some reason, they don't choose to, to, to come and write personal stories about the Palestinians and their occupation and their siege. Well, it's also about um, you know recording interviews such as ours now. I mean, we've we've interviewed um, people in Gaza directly. I mean, we were at the, during the last big Israeli military strikes on Gaza. You know, one of our guests was living through a bombing experience. It's not that difficult. Um, I was making excuses for media and just then about you know how difficult it might be for travel. You tell me it's not. It's certainly not difficult, even with. The connections, which are notoriously much poorer in the occupied territories, but it's not difficult actually to reach out and connect pe to people, um, to get people to be interviewed. So, um, yes, that does beg the question, you know, why, why are we not hearing more from ordinary people? Basically because the Western media did not choose to give these ordinary people uh, a, a voice. Mm. During the last war and during the March of Return, we have seen thousands and thousands of Palestinians doing citizen journalism, publishing stories, writing tweets about what's going on in Palestine. But when we when we go to the mainstream media, we see that they don't include these voices. They only uh, they only quote the Israeli army. They only uh, include uh, the, the Israeli officials, but they never give a voice and agency for the Palestinian people. Yes, I mean we've got this headline now uh, from the BBC. And it's interesting again, and, and you can talk us through this. But Gaza clashes, <laughs> you know, a clash. You know, but this is uh, 52 Palestinians killed on the deadliest day. Um, a, a clash. You know, I'm, 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 fr I'm from. Uh, uh, I speak English as my first uh, language. I'm from England, where this mother tongue comes from. A clash is usually a kind of a, a dispute uh, involving uh, two people, two equals. A clash. Uh, what do you make of that headline there? This uh, did not happen only in Gaza. Even in the West Bank and in Jerusalem, every time the Palestinians protest peacefully, it is always it clashes. And look at this uh, headline. Like, I've been in the March of Return. I attended most of the Fridays of the March of Return. And I have never seen clashes. And, the, and, the, uh, uh, and of course, you have seen that. No one, no Israeli soldier was hurt during the March of Return. So they were not clashes, but... These stories, these headlines are put uh, in a perspective, in a context that would give the audience the impression that there were clashes in Gaza, that there were wars in Gaza, that the killing of 52 uh, Palestinians in only one day is justified in some way or another. So well, it's I mean, Grant in Manchester asked the question, um, what are your thoughts on the coverage of the Great March of Return in general? Um, in the Western media, given that you were there at the time. You were there on the spot. You were seeing what was happening. What, what was really happening? Uh, 
Yes, that's a very clever question. Before we go uh, and talk in details about the March of Return, mm. we'll have to know the context behind the, the March of Return. We'll have to say that 70% of these Palestinians living in Gaza are not actually from Gaza. They are refugees coming from cities like Yaffa and Akka and Jerusalem and Beersheba and other Palestinian cities that are now uh, uh, Israel. The Palestinians in Gaza have been uh, under siege for, 50 year, for 15 years now. They have been under three wars. The, the Palestinians in Gaza, 40% of the Palestinians in Gaza are children who have uh, been born in Gaza under siege, under occupation, under um, massacres. And then they decided to, to demonstrate peacefully, to demand the right of return, a right that has been guaranteed by the United Nations. A resolution 192 gave the Palestinians the right to return to their homelands. So, so the Palestinians, most of the Palestinians in Gaza, participated in, in, in this march return, uh, in this uh, march of return, in order to tell the world that we are here and we are refugees and we demand our right to return to our homes and cities and lands. But then what happened? This is what happened. Israel started to shoot the Palestinians. More than like 52 Palestinians were shot in one day and more than 1,000 were injured at the same time. And then the BBC calls it a clashes. There were no clashes. I have been there. I've never seen a clashes. I've seen that thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of Palestinians participating peacefully in the March of Return. And not only at the, at the front lines of the March of Return, the vast majority of these Palestinians were celebrating, were making cultural, cultural events, uh, celebratory uh, uh, events. They were doing their weddings. They were doing many, many nice, beautiful mm -hmm. images and beautiful events in the March of Return. But then how Israel responded? Israel responded with tear gas, with life bullets, with exclusive bullets, and the Israelis shot the Palestinians in their knees, yeah. in their necks, in order to make them maim. Uh, Ahmed, I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, when, when you look at what actually happened, um, essentially people from Gaza, Palestinians from Gaza, marching towards a heavily fortified border, which, in all truth, they could not get through, not unless they had armored cars and bulldozers and what have you. So everybody knew that this march was not going to succeed in, in going through the Israeli-constructed border. And that um, wasn't their intention. The yeah. Also, so that was a, well, a march, a march of return would suggest that that was a, you know, people would like to return to their homelands if they could. But the actual possibility of doing that it simply couldn't. It wasn't going to happen because, but but to go but to go as far as the Israelis did is something that you don't see uh, elsewhere. By and large, it does not happen on such a scale that you start shooting live ammunition at people who are protesting, marching towards a border area that they they cannot get through. Um, and so you were there. You saw that. Um, and, and look at this, is Haaretz, uh, you know, 42 knees in one day, Israeli snipers open up about shooting Gaza protesters. Well, fair credit to Haaretz for, for, for getting to the truth there. Um, but, you know, I, I, do, you, you, I can see from what you said why you would, why you would feel so frustrated and angry uh, at, the, at the, way that, the, the way that the kind of necessary outrage does, is not allowed to happen because this is reported as a clash. Yeah, with the March of Return started, I thought that, yes, this is our chance as Palestinians to prove to the West that we are peaceful, that we demand our rights by peaceful demonstrations, 
and we want to remind the world of the right of return, the siege. And then when I saw the news, the Western media, I was disappointed as so many other Palestinians were disappointed with how they frame uh, and how they put their headlines and how they write their stories. Unfortunately, mm. we did not succeed as Palestinians to convince the West that what's happening in, in Palestine is only um, a peaceful protest. And, and, and here in, in the BBC, like, it says there have there have been six weeks of protests at the March of Return border. There is a huge problem with this word, with this terminology, with the glossary of the BBC. We do not have borders in Gaza. Israel did not declare its borders yet. We are not a country. We are not a state. What's separating us from Israel is a fence that is built in order to uh, impose uh, impose and enrich the, uh, the the apartheid regime that Israel is forcing against us. These Palestinians who were protesting, they're refugees. They have the right, the constitutional right to return, uh, as uh, as the United Nations uh, said. We do not have a border with Israel. And then they added, dubbed the Great March of Return and led by Gaza's Islamist rulers, Hamas. This is a lie. This is a flagrant lie. I have been in Gaza. I have participated in the March of Return. I, I don't belong to Hamas. And all of these people who participated peacefully were not led by Hamas. The March of Return was organized by, by a Palestinian poet named Ahmed Abu with many, many other uh, act, peace activists, so with many human rights organizations. So this is not that much, really, for journalists to try and to get to the bottom of that, really. I mean, you, you wonder where that story comes from in that case. How can this claim be made that this is all being organized by uh, one group, the Hamas, um, how, how is it that we have this kind of acceptance that, you know, this is a, an inviolable border? How, who, who, who put, who's putting out the press releases and the media? How, why are journalists writing these stories then? Because they just quote the Israelis. They don't care about the Palestinians. These uh, demonstrations was, were led by Palestinians. So uh, a respected journalist would go and interview the organizers of the March of Return. And we all know the, the organizers of the March of Return, but they did not do that. They went to the Israelis and they quoted them. And of course, Israel will say it's led by Hamas because they want to justify the killing of innocent Palestinians. And then the BBC would just quote them. This is a lie. And we all know it's a lie. It's not just omission. Well, it's not just... Yeah, and here we see this is the New York Times here. Um, uh, this yeah. is... Uh, I mean, the picture tells the story in itself. Um, but here we have that the Israeli military kills 15 Palestinians. It, it's, 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 most people could look, see that as, as murder in cold blood. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, there, are, there, there have been huge inquiries in many other countries when similar things have happened uh, historically. You know, Bloody Sunday in uh, Northern Ireland, uh, you know, it's a whole series of uh, inquiries into the, the shooting of civilians, the shootings at Amritsar in India. Um, yeah. Here we are, uh, you know, people yeah. stuck behind a border fence, can't get through in any event. Um, even if they were able to hurl anything, it's not going to go anywhere but being shot. And that really is the, is the most powerful image. And yet, at the end of it all, you know, the coverage has been there, so disappointing. Yeah, there is, uh, for me, there are two huge problems with this headline because it says confrontations at Gaza border. We did not have confrontations. We have Palestinians protesting peacefully. I have never seen anyone at the March of Return who is holding a gun or shooting at the Israelis. And Gaza did not, does not have borders. And then if you go to the byline, uh, 
the one who wrote this article is Isabel, who has a son who serves in the Israeli uh, in, the, in the Israeli army and whose a husband is working for a, a security research group that advocates for the Israeli uh, for the Israeli and Zionist uh, narrative. We have another problem that it says like in the third in the third paragraph, but as some began hurling stones, tossing Molotov cocktails and rolling burning tires at the fence. I have been there. I've never seen someone tossing Molotov cocktails. It says then the Israelis responded with tear gas and gunfire. Uh, right. Just like, as, if, as if Israel is like an innocent people who are trying to defend themselves, defend themselves and respond to, the, uh, to, to what the Palestinians are doing. This is false representation of the Palestinians. This is not what happened. I've been there. The vast majority, all of the Palestinians who were there, they were peaceful. And the proof of that, that no Israeli soldier was killed. And I have seen the Israelis who were killing and shooting the, the Palestinians. I have seen them. One moment I can't forget it is that an Israeli soldier shot someone and he was only two meters away from me. And he was 11 year old child. And I've seen him so far away from the fence. He never held the stone. He did not shout. He was just there when he was shot and he was killed instantly. And the one who killed him on the other side, we've seen these soldiers waving and celebrating and doing high five to each other. So they were enjoying killing the Palestinians. These Palestinians never posed any threat to, to the Israelis. They were just Palestinians. And just because they were Palestinians, they were confronted with tear gas, with fire ammunition, with explosive weapons. I have seen to, I've been to the March of Return. I've seen so many Palestinians walking on wheelchair. And someone who's called Ibrahim Abu Thraya, he was on a wheelchair and he was shot dead by the Israeli forces. How can you convince me that these people were throwing cocktail, uh, Molotov cocktails at the Israelis or they were intending to kill the Israelis? That was a lie. Well, I tell you what, I mean, as you say this, I think we think the fact, you know, you, you were you were lucky yourself because you could so easily have been injured and, and killed. Um, but look, Peter Larson has just uh, got in touch. He says, uh, I was there too. I saw the same things as Ahmed. Um, Rosie in Yorkshire asks, uh, do you think all of this is down to journalists being afraid of a backlash from a targeted pro-Israeli media campaign? Is this why... Is this why journalists almost sometimes self-censor themselves or use the language that they do? Well, I don't have to answer this question, but I would ask Omar to play a video that I have sent him explaining this. Omar, can you can you play this video, please, from Novara Media? It's simple. It's about intimidation. And don't you dare make the slightest positive noise supporting Palestine or else there'll be consequences. Now, this electric fence approach is built into the media institutionally through a network of pro-Israel pressure groups who specialize in media monitoring and orchestrating complaints. One is Honest Reporting, a non-governmental organization that monitors the media for bias against Israel. Headquartered in New York City, it has editorial staff based in Jerusalem with affiliates in the US, UK, Canada, France, Brazil, and Australia, New Zealand. Another is CAMERA, the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting in America. It claims to have over 65,000 paying members and that 46 news outlets have issued corrections based on their work after they showered media outlets with complaints and emails. Gershon Gorenberg, a journalist the American prospect, has written that CAMERA is Orwellian named and that like others engaged in the narrative wars, it does not understand the difference between advocacy 
and accuracy. In other words, it actively aims to assert a pro-Israel bias in media coverage. Then there are others like Palestinian Media Watch and Memory, the Middle East Media Research Institute, which the novelist Halim Barakat described as a propaganda organization dedicated to representing Arabs and Muslims as anti-Semites. Then there's BICOM, whose advocacy organization in the UK is called We Believe in Israel, and whose current director is Labour NEC member Lou Gatehurst. One campaign by Honest Reporting allegedly saw them send 6,000 emails a day to CNN's chief executive at the time. And following the subsequent meeting they gained, they noted that CNN started to refer to Palestinian terrorism. In other words, the fight was about the very terms the media chooses to adopt. Elsewhere, Honest Reporting claims credit for Reuters' decision to stop referring to Hamas as an organization that seeks an independent state of Palestine. Following a 2004 article published in the British Medical Journal, which criticized Israel for a high level of Palestinian civilian casualties and claimed the pattern of injuries suggested routine targeting of children in situations of minimal or no threat, the journal received over 500 responses to its website and nearly 1,000 were sent directly to its editor. In an analysis of the responses published in the journal, Carl Sabah concluded that the correspondence was orchestrated by honest reporting and aimed at silencing legitimate criticism of Israel. The BBC has been the subject of honest reporting's attention more frequently than most. As one source told Guardian journalist Nick Davies, if the editor of the Today programme knows that an item will make the phone ring off the hook, he may think twice about running it. The result of all this is that simply relaying the facts becomes more difficult, and anything other than a pro-Israel bias is seen as providing support for terrorism. This is how censorship works in free societies. It's not an organised conspiracy, it's journalists like Emily Wilder or influential figures like the Hadid sisters and Dua Lipa self-censoring because of positive and negative stimuli, carrot and stick. One side, Israel, is extraordinarily good at this. The other side, Palestine, isn't. <clears throat> As a result, the general public can never get the full picture of what is happening, with even the appropriate words that best explain the situation heavily contested. Yeah, I'm very interesting that, because I, it, it then you know makes us think about um, you know more recent uh, sins of omission. Um, the fact that there's a kind of almost, uh, some would say, a degree of self-censorship that goes on. Um, and we're talking perhaps about the New York Times that uh, failed to report for 50-odd days on the am amnesty report that uh, made quite clear that Israel was practicing policies of apartheid. Um, but all, all more, more, more recently, still the uh, obituary of Archbishop Desmond Tutu in The Guardian, um, contained an omission. It wasn't a deliberate one, by the way, but it was the the obituary had been written some time before, as often obituaries are, uh, but failed to mention uh, Desmond Tutu's um, comparison uh, between uh, what he saw as being South African apartheid and Israeli apartheid. Um, and I know about this from firsthand because uh, I, I, I made a comment in the comment section of The Guardian, which was immediately withdrawn, drawing this parallel, saying that in mentioning in, in, in Bishop Tutu, Bishop Tutu could not be forgotten because he had made this comparison. And others, too, uh, had exactly the same happen to them. Any reference to um, Israel and apartheid had been excised. Um, and they then followed quite a battle with the uh, with the Guardian, with the editor, 
finally saying, well, we made a mistake. Um, essentially, we were very busy on the night. One person had a huge job to do, which may well be the truth. But as you see, as you know, Ahmed, and from what um, uh, 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 Aaron Bastani was just saying there um, in Navarra Media, uh, it's the, the, the sins of omission, the sins of censorship, because people are now frightened that they may come under great pressure and have their professional lives you know, put under pressure too. It's it's um, what can be done about the question is what can be done about this? I mean, we can fight back individually, but what can we do to ensure that there is a, a fair and truthful reportage of what's really happening? Well, we can do a lot, but before we go to that, I would like to comment also. When I was in the March of Return, uh, and I was fixer to a, a journalist, a European one, and he was a bit brave, and he was stating the truth as it is. So one day he was coming to uh, Bungarian airport to come to Gaza to, to do the March of Return coverage. And the Israeli uh, soldiers there interviewed him and they told him, and I quote, we know what you're doing, be careful. He told them, he's a mm. journalist. But what they replied, they said, yes, and we make mistakes. So we have mm. many problems with it. Sometimes Israeli, uh, the, the Israeli soldier intimidate uh, journalists who are covering what's happening in, in the March of Return. Sometimes the Israelis shoot the Palestinians, as we have seen in them uh, uh, with the Sharina Ba'apla. And sometimes, as we reported in, in Euromed Monitor, that so many Palestinians in the West Bank, the Israelis interview them, make them uh, arrest them, and force them to collaborate with Israel. And many of them spoke about uh, spoke out about it. And they say that the Israeli soldiers threatened them that if they do not collaborate with the Israelis, they will uh, impose a travel ban on them. So what we can do about it? I think we have to be brave. Journalists have to be brave. Uh, the, the the principles of journalism is that we always we have to always cover what's going on uh, in the truth, in, in the ground, uh, in the truth. Uh, we have seen in the in the last war in Gaza that after uh, loads of misleading and uh, media from the West. Uh, when they were covering the March of Return, we've seen thousands of Palestinians and other Palestinians sharing uh, stories on, on, on their social media. We have seen celebrities talking about Palestine, and that made a change, actually, on the ground. We have seen that the New York Times and the BBC sometimes, it changed their headlines because they have seen that there is a backlash between, between Palestinians and non-Palestinians with sharing the news, sharing the truth of what's happening in Palestine. We are. We have right now. We have many, many tens of uh, Palestinian mm -hmm. newspapers or uh, Arab or uh, Eastern newspapers who, who uh, cover the right about what's going on in Palestine. So we have to share these stories, and we have to write to our MPs, asking them to pressure the Israeli journalists, the Israeli, uh, the Western media uh, outlets to cover what's what's happening on the ground and we have seen the impact of that for example this uh, this uh, was the front page of the new york times after there was a huge black lash on on the the new york times they have published the stories not the stories the images of uh, 67 uh, kids who were killed in the last war in gaza so there's a lot to be done and we can make a change if we keep boasting if we keep sharing the Palestinian stories if we keep pressuring or commenting on the uh, western media stories on palestine telling them that what you're doing is not right what you're doing is misleading the population i think we can have a huge impact and yes um, it's interesting this Ahmed, because you're right about the new york times and the, and other uh, uh, western media uh, sometimes 
they do revisit they do as, as i saw for this with the guardian newspaper for instance they do react to pressure from readers um and also because a lot of journalists are very decent people and one of our questions is you know aren't bbc journalists quite frustrated themselves i mean neil from glasgow wants to know that aren't bbc journalists a bit frustrated themselves when they see what happens to some of their work um but but the but the but the big big issue seems to be beyond the you know reporting of the the killing of civilians murdering of civilians it's these it's these roadblocks that the media finds very very difficult to uh, to to uh, to change tune on um you know for instance you know when amnesty international when the united nations uh, defines israel israel's policies as policies of apartheid you find these great time lags between it actually being reported as such so that's a real problem and i just i think we've got another clip i don't know if what we're going to see here um oh yes here we are look new york times gives in to widespread criticism mentions amnesty report on 50 days 50 days 52 days later i mean what happened there do you think Ahmed? what do you think happened there I think it, uh, reports by Amnesty and Human Rights Watch stating that Israel is an apartheid state is a game changer. This is a huge event, and we should talk about them day and night because this will make people change their perspective about Israel and Palestine. And I, for that specific reason, I think uh, New York Times delayed the the, the coverage of uh, of that um, of that incident. And here I've also sent Omar a, a clip by Greg Philo talking about the intimidation that these newspapers uh, and, and journalists receive when they want to cover the truth. Down to is a basic knowledge that journalists have, which is quite simply that if they criticize Israel, then it's potentially trouble. If they criticize the Palestinians, then it's, there is much less of a problem. So they might use a word like occupation but they won't say military occupation. They won't say military rule. They won't explain in detail what it means. Mm. They wouldn't, certainly wouldn't do it routinely to explain in detail what it means to be living under military rule and why the Palestinians, from their point of view, are trying to overthrow that military rule. After we did the first book, I gave a number of talks to, to journalists in Britain, to BBC journalists, and I spent time with people who were senior producers on, on television news and one of them said to me, in the context of quite a heated discussion that was going on with other journalists, he said, listen, he said, we wait in fear. That was his exact words. We wait in fear for the telephone call from the Israelis. He said, the only issue we face then is how high up it's come from them. Has it come from a monitoring group? Has it come from the Israeli embassy? Uh, and then how high has it gone up our organization? Is it the duty editor? Is it, has it gone above that? Is it the director general? He said, and I, he said, I have had journalists on the phone to me minutes before we've gone on, on, on a major news programme saying, what can I say? Which words can I use? Is it all right if I say this? <laughs> well, you know, in a, in a way, journalists don't really need to be going to their editorial directors to find out what words can be used because the you know, international law is quite, and it's quite clear about all of that, you know, but... Um, here we have we'll have to have an explainer here can you explain what this is so that that was um uh, a post or a story written by the bbc israel airstrike killed pregnant women and a baby 
And then after that story was published, and that was, I think, uh, last year, uh, here we, we, we see um, a tweet from an Israeli official. BBC World, this is a formal complaint by Israeli IMFA. This title is a deliberate misrepresentation of reality. That's the polite equivalent of this is a lie. If you don't get it, Israelis were targeted by Hamas and IDF acts to protect them. I change it immediately. And yes, they did. They did change it to completely the opposite of the meaning. They said Gaza airstrikes kill women and a child after rockets hit Israel. That was a lie. And they responded immediately after they, uh, after they saw this tweet. So that's, that's terrible. Like, yeah, I mean, the Palestinians are lying about the Palestinians. Yeah, I mean, there's um, we've got a, a point actually. I was going to go on to this actually, but it's been made for me by um, uh, by someone here, Green Pal, who says, uh, Can social media make up uh, for all of this for the failures of the for, of mainstream media? Can can social media begin to do the job that's, that mainstream media isn't? Well, I, I think and I believe that social media can play a huge role, but it can't substitute the the, mis, uh, the the Western media, the the mainstream uh, media. We have to uh, pressure these Western media to uh, change its narrative on, on in Israel and Palestine. We have to encourage them and ask them and demand them to change their narrative, not to be biased to the Palestinians. We only ask them to be neutral. We ask them to be unbiased. And social media plays a huge role with that. And I think with citizen journalism, we have seen thousands of Palestinians during war, during the March of Return, sharing and tweeting and writing about what's going on in Palestine. And this kind of change. But I personally, I don't think that social media can substitute the traditional media. But it can play a huge role in assisting and pressuring the Western media to be neutral, to be unbiased and to be truthful. Do you think, Ahmed, I mean, what, what has become more and more apparent um, because we've seen so much of this and it's a lot of it's come through social media, footage on Twitter and, uh, and elsewhere um, and the attacks, the more recent attacks in Gaza, the targeting of the uh, AP building. We all knew that as journalists and Israelis knew full well that that was a, they even told journalists to evacuate the building before they bombed it. Um, the targeting of journalists, which you've talked about, you know, the threat that was made to uh, the journalists that you were working with, um, and the the numbers of people who have been shot, dead, journalists or injured, uh, including, of course, Shireen. Does this begin to have an effect, do you think, it, on, on journalists and broadcasting organisations? Uh, because there, there are not many places in the world where it would appear that the state targets journalists for being shot. Since 2000, uh, Israel killed more than 45 Palestinian journalists, and the people did not change. When I was in Gaza, I thought that the problem with the Western media is that these Western journalists don't know the truth. But then I went to the UK and uh, I studied journalism, and I've seen that the Western media, as big as they are, the New York Times, the BBC, they all know the, the professionalism. They know how to write headlines. But we have seen them deliberately like uh, contradicting the principal rules of journalism. Look at this, for example, when Shireen Abu Akhla was killed. Shireen mm. Abu Akhla, a Palestinian journalist, dies at 51. This is not journalism. We have learned in journalism that you have always to start with an active voice. You have to say who killed 
these people and saying dies at 51. I think this is deliberate. They wanted to uh, distract people from reading this story. If I if I saw this story on uh, on another country, uh, a Palestinian journalist, like uh, at 51, they died. That doesn't mean anything. I wouldn't want to read this story. Well, why do I care about a Palestinian journalist who uh, who died? But if you say that a Palestinian journalist was killed by Israel while she was covering the news while wearing a blue vest. Mm -hmm. People will want to read more and more. Well, about you know, Ahmed, as I was looking at that, I was thinking, you know, with my uh, with the journalist hat on, you know, and and how difficult it is put together to get the headlines in a short, in a, a you know limited space. But I was thinking, even if that was offered up as an excuse for that particular headline, the New York Times, it really wouldn't stand. I mean, there are plenty of ways of actually telling the truth in as many words in a headline. Um, you know, she was she was targeted. She was killed. There's, there appears to be no doubt about that, really, because uh, people who were there who saw it have given witness to it. And uh, the Washington Post uh, just a couple of days confirmed that that would, had happened as well, uh, apart from all of the other things. So, look, I suppose in the, in the last few minutes, I mean, we've, we've looked at what happens, the pressure that is put on journalists, the self-censorship very often, uh, the the wish of some people to avoid having a, a row and not be you know have a, a great slew of complaints pouring in, um, but we've witnessed this over years, and I've witnessed Jeremy Bowen, the Middle East BBC's Middle East uh, editor, um, a journalist really of a first class journalist, uh, you know actually being um, put hauled over the coals by the BBC as a result of complaints made to him, which really didn't stand the test of time, as he has attested and many others have as well. The question, I suppose, is is, is this. Given that we know that um, uh, Israel, the government of Israel, um, uh, its security services, the whole panoply of Israel is very, is very organized and powerful and influential in terms of its media operation. And so the question is, um, if you can't beat them, uh, join them and join them by being as good, if not better, in getting over uh, what you believe to be the truth as well. So we can reach our own conclusions. So how, how do you think um, journalists can better do their jobs? And how do you think that the, pal you know, Palest the, the, the Palestinian um, rebuttal machine can be much more powerful than it actually is. Well, I admit the, the Palestinians' uh, media needs to be better and better, but I mean, since when do we ask the oppressed and the attacked and the, this, the, the, the Palestinians who are living under occupation, who are living under apartheid, since when do we expect them to do a better job than the occupiers, the, the oppressors? I think it has to come from the, the, the Western media, the Western media and the Western journalists should do more effort, should be more courageous to tell the truth as it is. But we as Palestinians, of course, we need to do more and more work. That's why we started We Are Not Numbers. That's why we started Palestine Chronicle. That's why we started so many other Palestinian outlets that is willing to uh, tell the truth uh, as, as it is. So this is a document like uh, of, of what we should do, like we should like and how uh, the media in the West should uh, improve. But I think, yes, like it is the Western media responsibility to tell the truth because they are obliged by professionalism to tell the truth as it is. They should not be coward to 
to slam Israel when Israel is committing human rights violations, when it's oppressing the Palestinians. I mean, this is a, a, a code of conduct, effectively. Um, uh, I mean, this is, is this something that has been shared with, um, with, with other media organizations by, by way of kind of education, advice? Yeah, I think so. I think it's like uh, an advice for uh, for journalists in in Palestine and outside uh, to to adopt these principles to uh, to give the Palestinians the voice that they deserve. I haven't read this actually, to be honest. Yes, it, I mean it does. Ten things to remember when reporting on Palestine: the Palestine Institute for Public Diplomacy. Um, and I know a lot of work has been going on, not only here but but uh, there, but also in sort of the the, the ethics code for journalists. Uh, in Palestine, and of course, you know, people watching this may well know, but the you know the, the Palestinian journalists have had a record going all the way back to the to Ottoman times of, of professionalism uh, and uh, diligence, and also reporting the truth in often difficult circumstances, from Ottoman times to the British Mandate to the Israeli occupation. And so, um, Ahmed, I think this has been a very very valuable discussion uh, and uh, it's it's i think it's i hope it's helped throw some light on 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 the challenges uh, that journalists face themselves but also the pressures that are put upon them um and the way that there's uh, it's it's you know this kind of self-censorship uh, seems to have really worked its way into the into the sort of lifeblood of media organizations and so you know what you've been telling us today about your own experiences and um, and how you think that you know things can be improved and turned around. I think is very valuable. But look, in the last um, uh, couple of minutes, I just I just hand it back to you, Ahmed. I mean, from what you've seen as a journalist and and also as a campaigner, uh, from what you've seen uh, in Palestine itself and now where you are here in Britain. Uh, what are your sort of final thoughts, uh, if you will, on what really must be done to get fairness into reporting in, on Palestine? Well, I would like to say that we, the Palestinians, have been suffering at the hands of the Israelis for the past 74 years. And to some extent, we are used to the suffering. We are used to the uh, bombing of the Palestinians. But what we are not used to is seeing the Western media deliberately and systematically silencing the Palestinians, depriving them of agency, uh, neglecting their stories, not shedding light on their suffering. So we as Palestinians, we ask the international media to stop it, to quit this, to be fair, to be just, and to tell the truth as it is, because it matters. And I've always said that the Israelis are committing war crimes and, and uh, crimes against the humanity, against the Palestinians. But those journalists, who always give Israel an excuse and justification for their killing and for their uh, for the suffering that they're inflicting with the Palestinians, they are complicit in these crimes. So th this has to change because media matters and journalism matters. So they have to respect their profession and they have not to be coward. They have to be brave enough to tell the truth as it is. Thank you very much indeed, Ahmed. Thank you very much indeed for being our guest today. And thank you to all of those of you who sent in questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of you, but uh, uh, it's been a very powerful and um, an, an informative uh, discussion. And, and we're very grateful for your time today, Ahmed, and I hope you'll come back again. So um, from all of us at Palestine Deep Dive, uh, until next time, 
Goodbye.